part four of the pursuit of happiness. Sorry, scratch that, the pursuit of holiness, right? So the idea, if you've been here for even one of these four weeks, the idea is that we're so busy trying to be happy that we don't realize that if we will pursue holiness, we might be happier than ever. And a lifestyle where you're truly and practically, even in the 21st century, holy is one that leads to joy and is one that can lead you to a place where you can face the circumstances of life and still not lose your mind. So this is the idea, and the Bible would say things like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These things, these material things that people are so worried about, well, this is Jesus who said that particular phrase. We like the reverse, right? We want to seek all the things, and then we'll be happy. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. you seek me, and you seek my kingdom, and you seek my righteousness, and then you'll see that you'll start to discover happiness that you've never dreamed of. So anyway, last week we talked about the place of personal discipline in a lifestyle of holiness, not necessarily a popular subject, but we said there's no magic button that you push. We say, okay, now I'm instantaneously delivered and living a holy life. That is true in a positional sense, but that is not true in a practical sense so when you become a christian god declares you holy god declares you justified before him but you have to live that out in a practical sense and there's no magic button for that we talked about how discipline is not legalism and uh, it's not a series of rules like in some churches and some religious organizations it's all about the rules and, you know, if a woman is wearing a pair of pants, well, she's on her way to, you know, eternal fire. And God forbid she should wear makeup because if she wears makeup, you know, they, that's legalism. Okay, maybe some of you are raised in legalistic contexts. Uh, discipline is not legalism. So Paul said to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. And this is correction and molding and perfecting of the mental facilities or the moral character. We talked about how the Bible is a primary tool for personal discipline in life. All scripture is God-breathed, Paul said, and is useful for teaching and training and correcting um, and, and training in righteousness and so on. Uh, we talked about how that works, right? So God wrote the Bible. We learn the Bible. God reminds us of the Bible. We apply it in our life. We talked about how you should discover a way to read the Bible, plan a time, plan a way. We talked about the different things that happen when we can read the Bible. We can hear, we can read, we can study, we can memorize, we can meditate. And today we're going to finish it off and talk about holiness in an unholy world, holiness in an unholy world. So how many of you can tell Oh, I can hear it. Yeah, it's working on Mevo. Good. So how many of you know? Yeah, well, everybody's hearing the echo, so that's cool. It's like I'm in two places at once. All right, thank you. We'll work the bugs out. So how many of you know that when we live in this world, you're not really being encouraged to live Christianly? Have you noticed this? Have you noticed? There's a bit of a contrast. It's not like you turn the television on or you go to work or you go to school and everybody's walking around saying, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah, 
right? It's not like they're going, oh, well, brother, sister, what's the Lord doing in your life? Oh, well, you know, what about this passage of scripture? Or what about this? And what about, it's not as if you're in a sort of a, a wonderful paradise Christian world, yes? Um, do you find that there's actually an opposition in terms of values, morals, things that people believe, it's kind of like an opposition where if you try to truly live Christianly, you will find that the culture is actually working against what you're trying to do. It's trying to oppose what you're trying to do. Can you give me some examples? We call this temptation. That's the fancy word for it. But can you give me some examples of this? Not necessarily super personal stuff, but just in a general sense. Oh, boy. Okay. Let me ask the question a different way. What are people, how are people trying to, um, to oppose the way that you may try to live Christianly? They're trying to pull you away. In what, in what sense? Okay, so there people may criticize the validity of the Bible, so you may walk around the, the workplace and say you believe the Bible, and it won't be like, oh, good, so do we. It'll, more, it'll be more like you're really strange. You actually believe the Bible. Okay, other things. Yeah, yeah. So in particular in Quebec, the taking off of crosses from places that they've historically been on, right? This, is a, this has reached a fervor in Quebec. It's a very secular province, so we want to try and remove the public displays of religion, especially by people who are paid by the public purse. Yeah, what else? You're fanatic, yeah. Yeah, religious fanatic, so you're criticized, again, for your, for your faith. What else? Right. Yeah. Ethics and religious culture, yeah. Even, so even in the elementary school system, the, the curriculum has changed, and they're very careful to, to present a, a pluralistic worldview. So any religious view is equal to any other view. And, you know, this idea of truth in religion has been totally removed. Yeah, what else? That's all surface stuff. I'm talking about the day-to-day -day stuff. How do you walk into this world and what are you tempted by? Gossip, okay, you're tempted to gossip. Sure, go into the workplace and do an experiment and start gossiping. You're not going to have people saying, stop that. You shouldn't gossip. Right? You're going to have people encourage you, most likely, to keep on gossiping. What else? Our thoughts, yeah. So, so the way that we think, we're not being encouraged to think in a godly fashion, right? The media, the popular culture, it's pumping our brains with all kinds of things to think about, but they're not necessarily biblical things. What else? Materialism, yeah, yeah. Boy, you guys are so... Sex? Are you not tempted? <laughs> Is this not a, a, a culture of temptation where, the, where there's a tremendous amount of sexual immorality? Hello? Do you not see that in the culture at large? Materialism, power, prestige, pride, all these kinds of things, right? So you're bombarded by values that oppose, oppose, oppose 
what you learn in the scripture. And you can, I mean, the way you raise your children, uh, the way you try and run your home, your marriage, everything is being pummeled in terms of what do you believe is real and true and what are your values, your ethics, all of these things. So the question becomes, um, how do we practice holiness in an unholy world? So the, the passage we're going to look at is from John chapter 17 and verse 15. And uh, this is from a prayer that Jesus prayed before he was arrested. So he has a long discussion with the disciples. There are 11 of them present because Judas has gone off to, to enact the whole betrayal process of Jesus. And uh, Jesus has a long discussion with them that you can read about in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16. And then he's going to pray. And uh, some people call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus uh, because he's kind of representing the disciples and ultimately all the believers of all time before the Father. So the people call this the high priestly prayer for that reason. And there's a little section of this prayer that relates to our subject matter, and it's, it's quite simply like this. This is Jesus praying. My prayer is not, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's it. Just focus on that part of it. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And I want to give you three ways that you can live and practice holiness in an unholy world just from this little sentence in this prayer of Jesus. It's quite profound when you think about it. Number one, just in kind of principle format, from we have to move from isolation to engagement, from isolation to engagement. What do I mean by this? So the tendency that we have once we recognize, aha, I'm trying to live Christianly in a non-Christian world, our tendency is to hide. Our tendency is to isolate ourselves and to protect ourselves from this unholy world, to isolate ourselves. There are whole movements in Christianity that are built on this. Um, I have had the occasion uh, many times to vis visit the Amish country in the state of Pennsylvania. I don't know if any of you in the room have done that, uh, but I have had that occasion. The Amish people are really interesting. Any of you have any understanding as to who these people are? They dress like they're in the 19th century, right? They don't, they don't engage in technology at all. They kind of isolate themselves. They live amongst themselves. They're amazing farmers. They are amazing cooks and bakers. The food that they make is like anointed from the, you know, the throne of heaven. I mean, it is amazing the way these people eat. They work very, very hard. I have seen the woodworking done by Amish people that is breathtaking in its beauty. And they don't use electronics. They don't use technology. And they isolate themselves from the world because for them, this is how they're to practice holiness in an unholy world. 
Do not engage with the world. The world will lead you to temptation. It will lead you to immorality. It will lead you to pride. It will lead you to idolatry. It will lead you to materialism. So they've built a whole community that grows just by biology, <laughs> just by them having kids. It grows. And, and this is the way that they practice holiness in an unholy world, to isolate themselves from it. And it's fascinating to, to watch. Uh, but if you look at the scripture, uh, isolation does not necessarily sanctify people. How many of you know you can go and live out on a desert island all by yourself and isolate yourself like some monk and you will still be tempted to sin? You still will. The problem is not the atmosphere you're in. The problem ultimately is inside your heart the Bible would say. And so Jesus is saying, no, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, not that you isolate them. And we have all kinds of things that assist us to isolate ourselves. So historically, this is really what the church has done. So if you, if you look at the book of Acts in the New Testament and really the first two and a half centuries of Christianity, Churches uh, were, were gatherings of people. They did not have buildings. They did not have money. They, they did not have all these amazing resources, you know. <laughs> and they didn't have all this stuff. Um, and they were, they were built on this confession that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And they, they, they built this community of believers. But when they met, they met all over the place. So they met in public places like the temple courts or in the marketplace or in the public squares. They met from house to house. Uh, we see this all over the New Testament, the book of Acts. And really for the first two and a half centuries of Christianity, this is the way that it was. It's only when Christianity became the official religion when Constantine allegedly became a Christian and legalized Christianity across the Roman Empire that we started to build these buildings. And the reason why this was done is because in, in, the, in the Roman worldview and their religious system, they built these temples to their gods. And so they mixed this with Christianity. And you had these beautiful buildings built over, over hundreds of years. And the idea of church changed from the people who gather to the place where they go. So if you ask the New Testament this question, did you go to church on Sunday? The New Testament would scratch its head and say, church is not where we go. Church is who we are. It's not where we go. But again, because Constantine and the whole mishmash of other religious views into Christianity, we have all these wonderful buildings. And, we, and it's good to have a building. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I really would like to have a building. Do you know why? Because nobody can tell me what to do if I have a building, right? So if we had a building this morning, you know, it's our two-year anniversary technically. If we had a building this morning, we'd have plenty of food. 
Here we can't bring food in here. They, the hotel doesn't like us bringing in food. They want us to cater the food, which means, of course, you know, there's a little bit of monetary exchange involved. And, that, and that's fine. You know, when you rent a facility, you, you play by the rules of the facility, right? And so, it, it, but when you own one, it's like, oh, I could do what I want. I could bring in food. I could use it for whatever. Nobody can tell me what to do. It's nice to have a facility. Uh, God willing, one day this church will have a facility. By the way, uh, just as an aside, I have run the numbers, and uh, you need to know that I look at numbers all the time. Uh, I see who's here. I see who's not here. And some of you, you know that if you're not here for two or three weeks, uh, you're going to get me on your back, right? And some of you have experienced that. You get a phone call. You get an email. You get a text. You get some message from from me saying, hello, are you okay? Are you alive? Is everything okay, right? You, you know that you get that from me. But I look at numbers all the time, and I'll just tell you that in this particular place where, we're, where we happen to be renting now, there is indeed an increase in the cost. But I've, I've run the numbers. So be, uh, our size actually is not bad, and, and uh, with the amount of families that we have, if every family gave an extra $50 a month so about 12 bucks a week, we'd actually be able to pay for this place with the amount of families that call this place home right now. That's pretty good. Even the people on Facebook who are watching on Facebook Live, some of them give electronically. They never show up, but they're very engaged in the life of this church. So that's pretty good. But in the end, it, it sure would be nice to have a building. But how many of you know that a building makes a really nice hiding place? And most churches, most, not all, but most churches the general idea is Christians go here. So if you come to this place, there's a general assumption that you're probably a believer or at least open to the idea of Christianity. And we have kind of designed them. Many, many churches are like this where non-believing people, non-Christian people, people of other religious views and so on, they really don't feel too comfortable because they can tell when they come in, people look at them funny, people, you know, oh, I can tell there's some, you don't look like one of us, you don't talk like one of us, you don't dress like one of us because we like to isolate ourselves. And it's interesting, Jesus prays the opposite. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Uh, the reason why this church exists is to reach the one who is far from God. That's evangelism, we call that. So that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. That's discipleship, we call that. So it's not just for Christian people and it's not just for non-Christian people. It's for both kinds of people. But our tendency is to isolate ourselves and to say the church is for us. Isolation, however won't necessarily lead to sanctification. Even our theology helps us to hide, right? So most, most people in our stripe of churches, we're, we're the Pentecostal lot. Uh, most people in Pentecostal churches and many in Baptist churches and in the broader scope of, of the world, especially North America, we have this little piece in our theology in the future things called the rapture. I've talked about this a little bit. And the idea of the rapture is, of course, that Jesus will remove the church from the world before a period of tribulation. Isolation, hiding, 
So what do we do? We say, let's go to church. Let's all hide in our churches. And, you know, it's a place for us. It's a place for us to refuel. It's a place, place for us to be energized. And we will wait in this evil, ungodly world for Jesus to return at the rapture. Praise God, right? So we even develop a theology that helps us to isolate ourselves. But it won't necessarily lead to holiness. Won't make us more holy because Jesus said, my prayer is not that you take them out. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. Isolation won't sanctify. Here's some tips for you, really practical for living a holy life in an unholy world. Because you all, you, you, you're going to go out into your marketplace. You're going to go out into your business. You're going to go out into your office, out into your school. If you're retired, out into your, your network, your community of relationships with people. And most of the people are not Christians. It's not holy out there. Here's my tip for you. Don't isolate, but engage. Engage the unholy world rather than isolate yourself from it. So great psalm. Uh, Psalm 107, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. <laughs> if you're a Christian, if you're in there endeavoring to live Christianly, make it known. So if you're out in the, in the marketplace and someone asks you, what did you do on the weekend? Why don't you say so? Well, I, I, on Sunday, I went to church. Do you know what that will do? That will open up a conversation and you will be known as the churchgoer. But that's good because it at least people know where you stand, you see. And if you want to live holy in an unholy world, you should say so. Engage it. Say you are a believer. Say the things that you believe. You may not have all the answers. You may not have all the answers to all their questions. But let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I learned this when I worked in the marketplace, and now I'm still kind of engaged in, in the marketplace a little bit through volunteering at the, at the mission, as you know. I found that when people see that you, you, know, you claim to be one of these Bible-believing Christians, but they watch your life and they actually see some authenticity and some reality to it, that you know what? They actually start to respect you for it. They may not agree with it. They may not like it but they actually respect you for it. This is what I discovered when I started to say, you know what, I'm not going to run from this world. I'm going to engage this world, and maybe that will actually help me to be more holy. I remember one guy where I was working, this was years and years ago. Uh, I was in a you know setting where there's a lot of banter, a lot of joking going around, and this guy, he made this really rude cry rude joke it was of a, a decidedly sexual nature and he made this rude crude joke to me and i'm telling you it was like something came over me i don't know what it was and i said to him you know what i said you can joke around with other people like that but don't don't joke around with me like that i didn't even know where it came from <laughs> it just came out and he looked at me and he was kind of stunned and he never ever joked around like that with me again ever and we had great conversations, and it opened, up, it opened up conversations about religion. But he knew where I stood, you see. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Again, uh, uh, Church of Our Stripe, Pentecostal. Okay, don't let that word scare you. The, the idea of Pentecostalism is that you're able to go out into the world 
in the power of the Holy Spirit, depending on the Holy Spirit, and actually live a holy life in an unholy world. That's really what Pentecostalism is all about. Uh, people uh, say, well, you're the crazy people, the tongue-speaking people. What are you going to do, pick up snakes and drink poison on the stage, right? And they think that's a weird pe Pentecostals. That's not what true Pentecostalism is. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Engage this world. Jesus said, be salt and light. How can you be salt if you're not touching something that needs salt? How can you be light if you're not shining in a dark place. So we've got to move from a place of isolation to a place of engagement, and we'll see that, wow, I'm able to live a holy lifestyle even in this unholy world, and it actually is better to engage than to isolate. And don't get me wrong, there's times in life where you need to. There's times, I remember when I was a brand new baby Christian, I had to isolate myself. I had to because I knew that if I stayed friends with the same people and I hung around in the same circles that I did, I would go right back, you know, to the way that I was before. But as you mature, you learn, hey, I can, I can live in this world and yet not be of this world. Number two, we've got to move from belief to conviction. From belief to conviction. You know, it's so nice. We come in church and we can sing. We sing about the things that we believe. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Christ will come again. Yes, yes, yes. That's great. Uh, beliefs tend to be, however, a collective thing. So, it's great. We believe together. Jesus said, uh, them. You know, he's talking about my prayer is for them, not that you would take them out of the world. The them is the people who believe. It, 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 referring first to the disciples, but ultimately to you and me. So we're the them. And it's great. We can say we believe such and such and such. And that's good. But conviction is something deeper. Conviction is... It doesn't matter who else believes it, I still do. Belief is, oh, I can believe it because all these other people do, and I feel encouraged by that. You know you have conviction, however, when you're able to say that you still believe those things even when you're not with other believers. You're out in a non-Christian place. You're in an unholy world. And here's how you know whether you have conviction or whether you have belief. Ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? If your answer is because others do, then that's, that's good. But it needs to be more, I believe in these things because such and such and such is based on a personal conviction. It doesn't matter. Even if I were alone in a prison cell, I would not forsake the things that I believe because these are based on convictions. You know, in a, in a court of law, any of you ever done jury duty? You ever been part of a jury? None of you? You ever been summoned for jury duty? Yes, you have. You've been on a jury? You were convicted or no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So <laughs> I'm really kidding. So um, no, here, but here's, here's the thing about jury duty. If you're on a jury, Right, so the prosecution is going to try to build a case to persuade you that the person that you're going to vote on is guilty. 
they are going to preach a sermon, if you will, to try and persuade you, the jury, that this person is guilty of telltale shows, right? And, and they, will, they will spin it. They will do anything they can, like a preacher, to try and get you to a place where you will say such and such is guilty because they are looking for what? A belief? No, they're looking for a conviction. We want to convict this person of this crime, and you all on the jury need to vote unanimously that the person is guilty. And when we get that, we have a convict. He is convicted, and we have a conviction. And many of us were at the place of belief, but we're not necessarily at the place of conviction. But I'm telling you, if you want to live a holy life in an unholy world, you better have some conviction. You better have something that can stand the tough test. Again, when you're alone in that marketplace, when you're alone in that school, when you're alone in that relationship, whatever it is, you better have something that's more than, well, I come to church and sing on Sunday. There better be something in the tank. There better be a conviction there or you're going to have a difficult time living holy in an unholy world. Why? Because Jesus said, my prayer is that you would protect them. You would protect them from the evil one. So Jesus is not ignorant in this prayer. There is an evil one, and he will try to tempt them, and he will try to discourage them, and he will try to make them live an unholy life in this unholy world. He will try to pull them away from you, Father. My prayer is not that you pull them away from this world, however, but that you protect them from the evil one. And the best way to do this, and you see the example, even in the life of Jesus, the last practical tip for you, we have to move from biblical knowledge to usage, from knowledge to usage. So now we live in this wonderful time. So, you know, we've got people watching us on Facebook Live, but you know what? They could, in one second, flip the channel to a much better preacher, a much better teacher. There is so much information out there. You now have information at your fingertips, anything you want, anything you want to know, and many things that you want to do, you can now do them electronically from anywhere in the world. You can know things, and you can certainly know the Bible, uh, it's interesting, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he, he predicts a time where people will increase in knowledge as he as he's kind of viewed the span of history. He, he talks about the end of time when people, people will go all over the place increasing in knowledge. We kind of live in that time, and we know many things. And, you know, you all who come to church every week, you, you become very, very good students and very good critics, I would add, of what you hear. I mean, imagine you come every week or most weeks to hear somebody speak to you, you know, for half an hour, 45 minutes, and you're listening essentially the same thing over and over again, and you evaluate, don't you? And you learn, don't you? And you can tell when, you know, there's something has got some teeth, or, well, you know, I've heard that before. Or you become very, very good critiques of what you hear. 
And like I said, you can get it from anywhere. Now you can just flip the channel if you're watching on Facebook and you sit there in your pajamas at home and you can increase in knowledge. And one could argue that we have more knowledge, biblical knowledge, or at least access to it now than we've ever had in the history of mankind. But here's what I've observed, and perhaps you've observed it as well. We have knowledge that is way beyond our level of obedience, way beyond. We know all kinds of things, but we don't do a lot of the things that we know. Uh, we get, I mean, some of you could probably get up here and preach a better message than I could. Uh, the question is not how much you know. The question is, well, what are you really doing with what you know? Well, if you want to live a holy life in a practical sense in an unholy world, just what in the world are you doing with all this information that you now have access to and that you learn week after week after week? You know, you get it drilled into you. You even have to listen to the same person every week. I mean, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, right? And you, what are you doing with what you hear and what you learn? Uh, the inspired scripture. Again, we looked at this last week. It's useful for teaching. So Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed or is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. So it's authoritative, it's inspired by God, and therefore it is useful. The question is, are we using it? And so how do you use what you learn? Well, you, you do so in a very practical sense. Apparently, if we learn from the example of Jesus, we see, wow, quite an example. So how many of you know that Jesus was tempted? Do you know the story? Yeah, so Jesus, right after he's baptized in water, he goes out in an isolated experience, by the way, and he faces the tempter one-on-one. -on -one. Right? Do you remember the story a little bit? This has been depicted over and over again in all kinds of different arts, television, media, paintings, all kinds of things for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you've got Jesus in this kind of battle, if you will, with the devil himself. Right, And so there's these temptations that come to the way of Jesus. You can read about them, for example, in Matthew chapter 4. And so uh, he's, he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat for 40, a month and a half, 40 days and 40 nights. If I fast for 40 hours, I get cranky, right? So this is, this is 40 days fast. And of course, the tempter comes to him and says, hey, are you hungry? pretty good temptation, right? If you didn't eat for a month and a half and you're out in the Middle Eastern desert and the devil comes to you and says, are you hungry? Well, you're the son of God, aren't you? So look, here's some stones. Why don't you take the stones and turn them into bread? Nice, hot, piping bread just came out of Tim Hortons. I mean, you've been fasting for a month and a half. If you are the son of God, why don't you just Turn the stones into bread. So how does Jesus answer him? Does he say, well, I'm not hungry. <laughs> no, he's pretty hungry. Does he say, oh, you're not there. I can't hear you. You're, you're not there. You don't exist. No, no, he doesn't, he doesn't deny his existence. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not hungry. How does he respond? He says, it is 
written using the inspired word of God. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, that is smart. That is a very, very smart rebuttal. He is taking that from a passage of scripture that he memorized, and it is from the book of Deuteronomy. First temptation. So then the devil takes him to the high, the, the holy city. This would be Jerusalem. And he has him stand at the top of the glorious temple that was enlarged by, uh, by Herod the Great. And, uh, and he says to him, well, you're right at the top of the temple. You look, at, look at how far down it is down there. He said, well, you're the son of God, aren't you? So why don't you jump? After all, the Bible says that your God will send angels and that he will, the angels will lift you up in their hands. Doesn't the Bible say that? Yes, the devil does know the Bible. Okay, he just misquotes it all the time and mis, misapplies it all the time. So he says, Jesus, look, it's so high. I mean, just, just jump and you'll be, you'll be caught because your God will save you. And so Jesus answers him and he says, aha, it is also written, usage of the word of God, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the third temptation, the devil shows them all of this kingdoms of the world, the splendor, the glory, the materialism, the power, all these things. And he says, I'll give you all of this. It's under my dominion, you see. I'll give you all of this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. I mean, aren't you tired? Month and a half of this fast, you know, aren't you tired? Just, I'll relieve it for you. I'll give you all of this stuff. And all you have to do is bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, usage of the word of God, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 11, the devil left him, angels attended him, showdown finished. But you see that Jesus does not ignore the reality or the existence of the devil. He does not attempt to will him away. He does not attempt to uh, ignore him. What does he do? He uses the useful scripture to practice holiness in an unholy world. How many of you know that probably if it worked for Jesus, the odds are it will work for you and me? This is why you need to get engaged in the Bible. This is why, again, you need to develop convictions based on the Bible. This is why you need to learn to memorize Scripture. I teach that over and over again, the lost art of Scripture memorization. I talked about the 2-7 series that some people are going through. Estella's doing it on her own. I know Rashid is going through the material a little bit with, with Paul Patterson, who's out of the room somewhere. And I, I'd love to see you get engaged in that type of material because that will, again, grow you and help you live a holy life in an unholy world. So from isolation to engagement, from belief to conviction, and from knowledge to usage, and you will see a huge difference. Will you stand with me?